Hello, this is Aaron Eckhart, and you are listening to Center Stage with Mark Gordon, the beautiful one and only Mark Gordon. Center Stage, Center Stage, Center, Center, Center Stage. Center Stage. Welcome to Center Stage. My name is Mark Gordon. Bruce McDonald is one of Canada's most original filmmakers. His latest movie, Features a narcissist, a hitman, a vampire, and Chet Baker. Sound bizarre? Well, stay tuned. You're about to enter the world of Dreamland. Well, first of all, how would you best describe Dreamland? Well, you know, it's a strange one. I would uh, sometimes describe it as a Euro trash jazz western, or it's a it's kind of a midnight movie. That's sort of the vibe of it. Are you a big fan of Chet Baker? I like the mythology and the and the, the broken down romance of Chet Baker. I'm, I'm probably more of a Miles Davis fan in terms of the trumpet men. Chet is a strange and spooky cat. Yeah, I saw the movie uh, Let's Get Lost. And, oh my gosh, yeah, it's and uh, I, amazing. And I love Chet Baker, and then I went out and got all this Chet Baker stuff. I mean, I was turned on, you know, years later th- through a short film about Chet Baker called The Deaths of Chet Baker. Uh, it was made by a filmmaker named Robert Boudreau. The film imagine, tries to imagine, well, how did Chet Baker die in that Amsterdam hotel room found down below on the street? Uh, was he pushed? Did he nod out after a particularly strong dose of his favorite juice? So it's a really fun movie because they play out the scenario like three or four times and trying each time it's a bit different. How did you develop the concept for Dreamland? Well, actually, it started with that short film in a way. Or one of the things that inspired us was uh, that short film, obviously, the Let's Get Lost uh, material. And I had read somewhere and I had heard from a number of people that to make a Chet Baker movie was very problematic because... Apparently, when he was alive, he'd sold his life rights to many, many people. Of course, all conflicted with each other. So, you know, there's been a lot of musical biopics made about all kinds of people like Johnny Cash and this sort of thing. But it was a rare event to see one about Chet Baker. So we thought maybe instead of kind of going the biopic route, we would kind of imagine a movie that late career Chet Baker on a big dose of heroin might cook up or a movie he might write. <laughs> so, and this gave us a kind of, a, this opened the doors to, to our movie Dreamland. What I found interesting about your film is I didn't know what to expect. It goes from being a gangster movie, then all of a sudden there's a vampire, blood dripping from a tree, you have a lot of social issues too. I mean, you've got uh, human trafficking. Yeah. You're know, just mixing all these elements together and they all just kind of work. We tried to capture the kind of experience of having a dream. And uh, I don't know about your dreams, but in my dreams, the oddest things uh, coexist uh, and it seems quite normal. And until you think about it, until you wake up and you think about the strange collisions that uh, seem quite uh, everyday and quite natural in your dreams seem 
quite ludicrous and illogical when you think of them from afar, look at, looking, looking at them. So the idea of, of, of uh, mixing in a vampire with a film noir and having a little bit of like Euro trash plus a little art film, a little bit of jazz seemed like a dreamy kind of concoction. And, you know, one of our guiding principles was the mind of uh, Chet Baker, who is the kind of our trumpet players modeled after very clearly. And we kind of, uh, at one point we imagined, well, we tried to imagine, we thought, well, you know, instead of doing a kind of a biopic on Chet Baker, why, won't, why don't we kind of try to sit inside him during a kind of heroin rush uh, in, late, in the later stages of his life and try to be inside Chet Baker and write a movie that he might enjoy. So that was kind of a, one of the guiding principles, I suppose, of this, this unusual collage of uh, genres and, and characters and, you know, the kind of high world, the low world. And it was really fun to turn off the uh, logic uh, machine and the, the rational part of ourselves and kind of open up the door to the unconscious and kind of allow things to be beside each other or on top of each other and to see, to be just as curious almost as the audience. Hopefully we, you know, hold on to the audience until the end, but see what that ends up communicating or what it means. Because I think like a dream analysis probably means different things to different people. I didn't get the Chet Baker reference until midway into the film. One of the reasons we don't call him Chet in the movie is because we just wanted to avoid having to ask somebody permission because the, the, the estate was such a tangle. So we just called him the trumpet player or the maestro. The, the actor Stephen McCaddy inhabits the, uh, you know, the, the kind of vibe of Chet Baker so beautifully, like his, his posture and his kind of, his kind of phrasing and that kind of, you know, that kind of fragile voice. So it was, yeah, it was really lovely to see him, Stephen, kind of conjure. I mean, I'm sure he looked at the movies and he listened to the records. And so we were kind of happy to have the, the spirit of Chet Baker in, in some way with us along for the ride. Stephen often plays characters that are uh, much more pushy, but much more, they're much more driven or they're much more active and uh, they kind of drive things. Whereas in this, it was interesting to see him play this kind of uh, isolated, uh, kind of lonely, broken, uh, haunted man, you know? It was really beautiful to see, you know, the lights on in his eyes and that fantastic face of his. And yeah, it was a treat for me to kind of have a front row seat. What was your biggest challenge in making Dreamland? This challenge maybe was finding the music uh, that was that was right. Like when you're editing a movie, it's often done where you use what's called temp score and you put in bits of pieces of music from different albums and movies and that sort of thing. So when you show the producers for the first time or you show you know a little test audience, you movies generally have music or often do. So uh, it's a way to kind of make the view, the first viewing experiences 
palatable and make it feel like a kind of full movie because music is such a big part of a lot of films. So in this case, uh, quite a, I guess I think the biggest challenge was once you leave the temp score and you hire the composer and you begin to work and the next time you screen a film, you show it and you realize what happens is that the producers and the other people close to the production that have gotten so used to the temp score they can't listen to the new score. They don't, they don't like it because it's different from what they've been hearing for the last three or four months. It can be a great barrier and a great hurdle. And in this particular movie, not quite sure why it was this one, but it was a challenge to get people to hear it because all they could hear was what was in before. You know, there's a phrase for that in the film biz, people call it temp love, where the, you fall in love with this sort of temporary placeholder music. And it's often music you can't afford anyway, even if you wanted to. You're using like Bowie tracks and you're using stuff from Low or you're using stuff from Radiohead or whatever it is that you're kind of going for. My lesson on this was not to use temp music anymore and just get the composer to begin much earlier. Yeah, I've uh, spoken to some composers and they call it temp death. Oh, that's good. It's very much like that. I always feel, I feel terrible for composers because it's such an awkward and horrible place to put them in. I mean, it's just so unfair because you're kind of starting with this monkey on your back. The composer should start along with the designer and, and start at the beginning. Because often, I don't know what it's like in, you know, in Hollywood movies or in other productions, but I know often in Canadian independent features, the, the composer is often you know, a much later sort of stage of the game. And by that time, a lot of the resources have been gobbled up and there's not a lot left for, for, for that. You know, the nice thing about having gone around the track a few times, you start to kind of put into place at the beginning what you learned at the end of the last one, and that can be very productive. So you came up with um, a group of filmmakers they called, it was like the new wave of cinema in Canada, right? Sure. Peter Rattler and Adam Egoyan and uh, Ron Mann and a bunch of people. Yeah. How did uh, your style of uh, filmmaking, why was it called The New Wave? What changes did you bring? Well, you know, we were a bunch of people in Toronto, uh, mostly out of Toronto. Some other people from, you know, Canada's got the English and the French side. French were all... For, you know, they were kind of cooking along quite well through the 70s and 80s. And the English Canada, because English Canada is kind of cultural province of the United States. And so these filmmakers that started to percolate, and I'm not quite sure why in that time, but up until that time, it had been a kind of an aberration to make a film in English Canada. It was a kind of something that had been done, but not in a regular way or not in a kind of a you know, in a big way, there wasn't much of an industry. You know, here we are outside the gates of Hollywood and we love movies. We love American movies. We love German movies. We love French movies. You know, some of us went to film school. Some of us worked in, you know, different sort of things in the theater. Maybe the draw to, to the filmmaking spirit is this communal effort and a kind of a nice... I don't know, there was a nice sort of thing that happened at that time. This was sort of late 80s, 90s, and, and, and it just the time was right. There was sort of a little bit of support in cultural industries for filmmaking. The industry was just beginning to really take off where 
Toronto and Vancouver were becoming bigger and bigger production hubs. The industry, especially the independent film industry, was supported. We would, you know, we would work on big productions and we would liberate materials for our own productions or we would uh, always find a way to, you know, hatch our own stories. And we just kind of use what we had available to us. It was a very kind of integrated group of people. Like I would edit for Adam or I was Peter Mettler's camera assistant. Or I would edit for Ron Mann and people kind of traded jobs and were very supportive and competitive with each other. So I still see those people. I'm still very friendly and see Adam and Peter and Ron and Patricia and a number of them that we kind of came up together. I think when you're starting out, I'm not sure how, again, how it is for other people, but I know for myself, the idea of being part of a community was, was almost essential, it was one of the essential ingredients for being able to go forward because you had people that you could count on, you had people that you could bitch to, you had people that could help to guide you or to be a critic of what you've done. So, you know, I really, really value that, that beginning time. In 92, you did, uh, you got the highest rating on Rotten Tomatoes, 100% for Highway 61. Then you did a movie called Hellions, which got a 27 rating, but the, um, what is it? It was the one to watch from Bloody Disgusting. So, <laughs> so it was, yeah, it was no, like... It's funny, like, I mean, you're, you know, you, you realize at a certain point, it's like, you're, you're not going to please everybody. And I remember when we, we premiered Hellions at Sundance, and I remember the night that we, we were very excited to be invited, and we went, it was part of the Midnight Madness series, and they, the guy that programs the series gave us the best introduction like you couldn't have asked for a better thing he was like not only is this my favorite you know film of the series of this year it's my favorite of the last like five years and he just and i think the audience was there to see another film i think they, they were just not expecting that one they were expecting something very different anyway so it didn't go so well but Sometimes it takes time for a film to find its audience, you know, or, or, or the audience to find the film. Pontypool was a good example of that because when that came out, it barely raised a blink, you know, and then over time, over, you know, whatever, 10 years or so, it's uh, for certain people, it's become a kind of well-loved uh, part of the zombie genre. The most important thing is you get people talking and then hopefully a little debate or my friend Tony, who is the writer of... Uh, the writer of Pontypool and the writer of, of Dreamland, he's made a couple other movies. And, and one of his critics named a film that he wrote. I'm not sure what the publication was, but he picked Tony's film Septic Man as the 17th worst movie ever made. And Tony's quite proud of that. <laughs> <laughs> quite an accomplishment. So... I don't know what the other ones are that are the total worst, but he feels like he's in, uh, he's, he's made some kind of list and he's kind of proud of that accomplishment. Well, with that in mind, what constitutes success for you? Well, I guess uh, in the simplest way, it is uh, the ability to go on and make another one. That's a thing. And then when I'm walking down Queen West in my neighborhood and a car goes around the corner and somebody yells out the window, hey man, I like your movies. That to me is like 
success. <laughs> yeah, it feels good. Success is the uh, platform or the, the ability or the privilege to, to continue on. And um, because if you weren't able to for some reason or you were prevented or stopped or that would be kind of a tragedy. So, yeah, I mean, you know, you always go into it thinking, oh, it's about the next one and it's the next one. You learn something on this one and you're, you think, okay, well, now I know what's going on and now I will put that into play on the next production, like the way we talked about the composer, you know? It's like, okay, I learned a lesson on the last one. And uh, you hope the next time, you know, God willing, that there, there there's a next time. and and you can be better and you work hard to try to become you know really good at what you do it's funny the guy uh the, the guy uh, in in for the listeners that maybe don't know there's a position on a film set called the assistant director and they're basically the lieutenant or the right hand man or woman of the of the director and they're kind of the straw boss or the, the organizer of the whole circus well, there was a fellow named David Webb who was my assistant director on our first three films, uh, Roadkill, Highway 61, Dance Me Outside, and Adam's films. And uh, I still see David. David uh, gave me a call last year. He was in town with a new film that he worked on called The Joker. And he was just finishing up with Martin. He just finished up with Martin Scorsese on The Irishman. So exciting for me to go, oh, there's one of our homeboys, David Webb, who is kind of the best in the world, I think, at what he does. And to see him, uh, you know, flying at the top of this, uh, at the top of his ability, working with, you know, the real masters and working on really exciting projects, I was, you know, I don't know, it was just a great marker in, in terms of how long it takes to kind of become a master and that, it can happen to a friend of yours, you know, that you can watch. And it's, it's exciting. It kind of charges us all, the rest of us up, gives us hope. What did you learn from Dreamland? What did you learn about yourself and about making movies? I think I learned uh, to trust my instincts a little bit more and the instincts of my collaborators. I learned that you don't always need your home team to score a victory or to score, uh, complete something, you know, going to Dreamland, which was shot in Europe. Uh, it was pretty much myself and uh, my AD, Keith White, and everybody else was kind of brand new. So it was a great lesson for me in trust, instinct with, you know, pleasing for me, pleasing and, and, and surprising results. And then um, to be reminded maybe of the magic and the power of, of a great performer. Things that aren't on the page come out and that's where the fairy dust is. And uh, yeah, so, you know, that's what I learned. Just a deeper appreciation of the performer, kind of an openness to trust new people, new, new allies and, and uh, fellow travelers. What, what is advice that you would give to a, a young filmmaker just starting out? Two things, maybe. I would say, you know, have a gang, get a gang, like whatever that gang is. It could be two people or four people, but it's got to be more than yourself because filmmaking is a, 
is a communal effort. It's a communal art form. It's not like painting. It's not like novel writing or photography. It's very much a sort of gang-related kind of expression. And I think, you know, more and more, and it's fantastic to have all the technology that we have available to us, but in some ways, and I'm talking more in the independent circles, it's kind of atomized people a little bit to do everything themselves or to do, you know, which is great to do a couple times. But I think there's, there's a great power in the band, you know, or in the gang to say, okay, I'm going to focus on the editing and you're going to focus on the uh, writing and I'm going to focus on the producing. It's a group thing. So that to me is extremely important. We talked about, you know, my community growing up and I had that. I was lucky to find that. And the second thing I would say to a young filmmaker is uh, story, story, story. A lot of young filmmakers through necessity are writing their own screenplays and some are okay but often I find that's the kind of the weak link in the production is, is, the, is the structure and the, the craft of the screenplay. And I think that if I was a young filmmaker starting again, if I was going to write my script, I would seek out a senior person that had, it could be a playwright, it could be a, you know, just a great storyteller, it could be an actor, somebody that has a sensitivity to character and story. Because when you're starting out, you're really, I mean, if you're gifted, you're good with story, but often you're just full of like the beans of wanting to do something and prove something and maybe make a genre film or make a whatever film. And you're kind of possessed and you need to be that. But I think within that possession, if you could either, yeah, just get help with your script, like the way people will have a rough cut screening for their, you know, their first cut or second cut or third cut of their movie, and they show it to friends and they show it to some other filmmakers and they show it to their mentor if they have one. I think the same should follow through for a screenplay uh, because if the story doesn't work, nothing will really work. Well, some things will work, but so yeah, I, I can't stress that enough. You know, if, and if you're listening and you're one of those people, seek out people that are better than you because people love nothing more than to tell you what they know. And, you know, we've all had help when we were starting out. So I think, um, you know, if you approach people in the right way and thank them and reward them, I think you'll find your screenplay or your story will become infinitely better. Not always, I suppose, but I think it will just be stronger and sharper. And it's, uh, that's the map that everybody follows. So it's very important that that map be made as good as it can be at the writing stage, as opposed to in the editing room when it's a bit too late. When you look back on your career, is there one touchstone that you have or one moment, one film that really resonated with you? Yeah, actually, I was approached by uh, none other than uh, Norman Jewison, who is known, famous for making Rollerball and In the Heat of the Night and Jesus Christ Superstar and Fiddler on the Roof and Moonstruck. He's a Toronto guy that's, you know, uh, moved away to Hollywood and Britain and then came back to Canada. So he, I guess, saw Highway 61 at the Toronto Film Festival and sought me out and presented me with this script about native uh, Indian teenage kids on a northern reserve based on a series of short stories by a writer named W.P. Kinsella, who is most known for his book, The Field of Dreams. 
And so that began this kind of amazing kind of adventure, probably one of the most fun times I've ever had on a set. We shot it in the autumn in, 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 in North Ontario with a bunch of uh, native actors uh, that were just really amazing in this beautiful landscape with Norman Jewison as our kind of mentor. He was off shooting in Italy, so he just phone in once in a while. It was one of the most sort of magical, it was a comedy. It was, and with a bit of tragedy in it, but mostly a comedy. And it was one of the most sort of magical shooting times. The crew is all there, they're all on location, they're all away from their homes. So there's love affairs going on and there's drinking mushroom tea on the beach and there's getting good at your craft of filmmaking. This is, you know, we had a first time a little bit of support. We had like a little bit of design and we had a little bit of costuming. So it was kind of, I felt like it was the first real grown up sort of production. And I think fondly of that movie and Norman Jewison and some of the things that he taught me. I guess it was the, the film that made me think, I like this business. I think I'm going to try to make a go of it. It sounds like when you're describing it, it's your coming of age film. I think so. It was just one of those, and it was funny because it was something that I would never, ever have thought of on my own. Like, I would never think, huh, I'm going to go up and make a teenage Native Indian comedy. Like, it just never occurred to me. Well, what did but Norman-, Norman, who had made films about communities that were not just Caucasian communities, you know, he'd done a soldier story, I think, by that time, or he was just doing it. He'd done In the Heat of the Night. He'd done, like, The Fiddler on the Roof. So he understood the power of a community that's outside of the center and the strength of that and the kind of interesting kind of thing that that is. And then, of course, the power of a movie to bring that to people that had never seen a reservation, didn't even know what a reservation was, never mind an Indian comedy. I guess you're right. It was a kind of a coming of age Maybe for me, as in my craft, and when you were telling me that, it reminded me of the story um, where the the kid's following the rock band, and it's his first job. He's he's oh my god, almost famous, right? Almost famous. It's I like love that movie. When when you were describing this, that's it. Sounds like that was you. You were that young young kid. <laughs> I think you're. Yeah, you just feel like you're. You can't believe that you're there. You can't believe this is really happening. But you do have some skill. You're kind of dazzled by the romance of it all. And uh, that's funny that you say that. I just watched that not long ago and was like, such a beautiful, sweet. And that's, you know, Cameron Crowe that comes from, you know, a kind of a young experience of of his as a young writer. Uh, It's a really beautiful, beautiful story. What was the lesson that... uh... Norman Jewison taught you? Let's see. Well, one of the things he taught me, he says, uh, he said, uh, if it's not about love, it's not worth doing. You know, because, you know, he knows uh, more than anybody. It's a tough road out there in, you know, movie land. It's not, it's a fun job, but it's not an easy job. And it takes up a lot of time. So it's not so much about the money that they pay you, because you can make good money doing things. But I think he was trying to say that, uh, you know, he was like, if you do good work, the gold will follow, you know, 
it's such a long engagement. People are kind of often shocked when you tell them how long something takes from you know that first inception in your in your mind or with your writing partner or whatever to the time that uh, here we are now. It's a long distance run. So if you're not uh, if you're not sort of passionate and in love with the thing that you're doing. It's not hard to run out of steam or to kind of put it aside because it's a, it's a very grueling long distance run. You were speaking in front of a group of people and you talked about something that had changed your life when you were 14 and it was a Bob Dylan record. record. Yeah. Yeah. The name of the song, it was uh, the classic, like a rolling stone by Bob Dylan off the great record. Highway 61 revisited. And that's the record, one of them anyway, that, that changed the course of my life. What was it about that record that changed your life? You know, music's always been really important to me. I grew up in the suburbs of Toronto, a middle-class kid, always figuring the world was somewhere else other than where I was. And when I think of that song in particular, I clearly remember the day sitting, hearing it come over the radio I had no idea who Bob Dylan was or where the song came from, but it was kind of like somebody, you know, kicking open the door in your mind or your heart. And suddenly the, you know, the wind rushes in and the sunshine and you're like, wow, where, where is this from? And, you know, it starts, you know, you start on a journey and for different people, it's different wake up calls or different, maybe it's a book or a poem or a person or a trip. For me, that song introduced me to Bob Dylan and introduced me to Arthur Rimbaud and introduced me to, you know, kind of was a road towards Patti Smith and it was a road towards a great French film called The Children of Paradise, which is a favorite film of Bob's. Took me to concerts, took me down to the real Highway 61, which runs right through the center of America, down through, you know, Minneapolis, St. Louis, Memphis, New Orleans was the road, all the great jazz and blues guys took up to Chicago. When I look back, maybe my memory isn't completely accurate, but I, I do remember that song being but a marker in the road that changed my direction and, and led me to some really amazing places. You know, anybody that's sort of an artist or a writer or a creator, you know, you need your master. You need your, you know, you need to sort of look at the people that have come before and they propel you forward. So I, I think fondly of that. I often think fondly of Mr. Dylan, and I'm always hoping that he's, that he's feeling all right. Bob Dylan's voice, David Bowie described it as Robert Zimmerman, a voice like sand and glue. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, you said something, if a man like that with a voice like that can make it. And there was something about him that inspired you that if he can do it someone that is not the greatest singer in the world but there was something about him that told you and it was almost like giving you permission to strike out and follow your dream well i think that's very true i mean i i bob dylan doesn't sing like frank sinatra or, or bing crosby or you know michael buble but he he uh he doesn't wait for wait around for permission, you know. He 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 puts it out there with what he has, you know. I think it was a general, the U.S. General Patton once said. He said, uh, you know, you never go to war with what you want, 
you go to war with what you've got or you lose your country. And I think people like Bob Dylan, kind of like a very early sort of proto-punk, you know, that he became a very original voice. You know, I think a lot of the punks like Patti Smith and probably the Ramones and Joe Strummer from The Clash kind of did that same thing too, where they were like, well, we're not virtuoso guitar players. We're not particularly handsome. We're not particularly gifted, but we have something to say or we have a desire to kind of, uh, you know, be a troubadour and we're going to make the best of it. We're going to use what we've gotten and, and um, you know, hit the road. So I found that tremendously inspiring because for, a, you know, for a suburban kid growing up way outside the gates of Hollywood, it's a, it's a, it's a tall order to think you can play in the movie business. What do you think you would have done if you didn't do a, uh, make films? Uh, good question. I've often asked myself that. And uh, the only thing I could come up with was making pizza at uh, Giovanna's, which is a restaurant across the street from us. I was lucky, you know, at a young age to kind of fall into this and uh, never really had to think too much about what I wanted to be or do. It was just something that uh, felt interesting and I was kind of, yeah, it just sort of seemed to fit and uh, was lucky enough to live in a world where that became possible. What would you like an audience to go away with after they see Dreamland? Like, I think I made this one for the people that used to go to the 99 cent Roxy and watch Eraserhead. That movie freaked me out. And I think it was because of the black and white. (laughs) Totally. It's one of the freakier movies. And I adore that movie. It just was a mind blower. We were so kind of formed by those movies, El Topo and Eraserhead and, uh, you know, the song remains the same. And these are all the midnight movies that we would go on a weekend and, you know, watch until three in the morning or whatever. So it's a kind of salute to those people and those kind of late night uh, weirdos that have an adventurous palette and kind of, you know, embrace that sort of strangeness and those kind of shadows. And I just kind of, you know, lovely people when you're sitting in a crowd at midnight of people watching these sorts of films. So it was kind of our way to, you know, I don't know, salute that sort of time in our lives and salute those people. I hope that they're still out there. I'm very curious what people will, how they'll interpret it or what they think it is or how they'll join the dots or how they will process it and what they'll call it. And, you know, it doesn't doesn't matter to me too much whether they embrace it or they like it or they don't what i'm curious about is what they think it is and what how they decode it it's not sort of much an issue of like or not like it's more of like what is this (laughs) i feel like uh i'm having the dream and the audience is dr freud or whoever that says, well, Bruce, I think that uh, this is a manifestation of your uh, inherent mischievousness and mm-hmm. your, uh, <laughs> you know, your love of the vampire. Yes. I don't know, whatever, whatever Dr. Freud would say. And so I'm hoping that the audience will take on that role and maybe guide me and Tony, the writer, to the next, uh, next station. Well, Bruce McDonald, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to uh, to share your 
your story. We really appreciate it. Well, Mark, it was a I must say it was an absolute pleasure. You're a great, uh, great guy to have a conversation with, and you're, you're a very generous man. And uh, I, I, I hope we do this again. I hope I look forward to the next time. Just a reminder: Dreamland is currently playing on a streaming service near you. If you like the podcast, let us know, and why not subscribe? Visit us on the web at stageandscreen.com. Until next time. This is Mark Gordon, and I'll see you center stage. Center stage, center stage, center, center, center stage. Center stage. Hello, this is Homer Simpson. Whenever I want to know what's going on in the entertainment world, I listen to Center Stage with Mark Gordon. Hehehe. <laughs>